went out to the desert for 30 days. We were all living in tents. We're all eating MREs. It was 106 degrees outside and we didn't have air conditioning. We're flying under night vision goggles. There's an aircraft in front of me, an aircraft behind me. We're flying at 20 feet at 120 miles per hour. Drop the collective a little too much, then you'll crash and potentially crash the entire formation flight. It's very thrilling, but it's a very surreal feeling knowing that just the one small movement could could be the end. <laughs> I was just living such a different lifestyle before the military. For example, the year leading up to me joining, I was working as a personal trainer. I was making a decent amount of money. I was living on the beach in California. I had an extreme amount of freedom in my life. I could take off work whenever I wanted. If someone was like, hey, do you want to go to France next week? I'd be like, sure, like, let's go. And I would do that. That life was great and I miss it every single day. But I wasn't fully fulfilled and I didn't have a, a good sense of purpose. I have come to learn from experiencing two drastically different lifestyles, who I am as a person and what my values are. was Emily, I'm Andrew, and this is the Unpretentious Podcast. What would cause a financially secure person to leave the California beach life and join the military? What would a woman learn about her feminine and masculine sides surrounded by guys? I was curious to find out, but started by asking Emily what flying a Black Hawk helicopter is like. It's a dream. It's definitely my dream job. There aren't that many jobs where your office view is through the windshield of a cockpit going 120 miles per hour, like 20 feet off the ground. So it's definitely everything that I've ever wanted. It's exciting every day to get to fly. We fly through canyons. We land on the edge of mountains and we get to do new, exciting, different types of flying almost every day. And there's just no better feeling to me. So are you like shooting missiles and stuff? What is the Black Hawk as opposed to other helicopters? It's a utility helicopter. So we have essentially three main jobs. One is assault, which is what I'm involved in. And that involves taking troops behind enemy lines and taking them to accomplish their mission or picking them up from a mission that they've already accomplished. It also involves bringing supplies to them if they're in a remote area, that kind of thing, just supporting the troops on the ground in general is what the assault mission is. And then there's also medevac. That's when you see the big red cross on the side of the bird, it's a medevac bird. They're technically not like players of war, like you're not supposed to shoot them down. They're not supposed to have guns on them. 
they're just there to go pick up wounded soldiers and get them to safety and get them the medical treatment that they need. And then the last one is VIP. So that's just picking up generals or senators or whoever is important at the time and taking them where they need to go. So to fit that into movie references, the assault is what we saw in Black Hawk Down. The medic is MASH. And then I guess the VIP is like Iron Man where they're flying the generals around. <laughs> is this... Yeah, essentially. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> this is clearly the civilian version of what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you can put it into context, though. That means that you're getting the gist of it. You're saying it's a dream. How did you know flying a helicopter is being a dream? And then... Is part of the dream being in the military, or that's the only way to fly a helicopter? I mean, I guess I didn't always know that this was my dream. Like, I I know some people who are like, oh, I've known I've wanted to be a pilot since I was six years old. It wasn't that way for me. I had pretty much always known that I wanted to join the military because growing up, I was a gymnast, and that was, like, my entire life for the majority of my childhood. In gymnastics, there's a lot of discipline, strength, dedication that's involved, and each of those aspects fit seamlessly with the military. So I was always drawn to that lifestyle that I would see in the movies or hear from my friends. So I always knew that I wanted to be in the military, but I didn't really know what I wanted my job to be. I just always held off and held off on joining until I could find the job that I thought was meant for me. And in the process, like between gymnastics, I became a skydiver and through skydiving, I just wanted to be in the sky more. I found that it was my happy place. (laughs) And so then I was like wanting to spend more and more time in the sky and then eventually got into piloting. And then it was kind of an epiphany at one point. It just kind of clicked. I was like, okay, like military pilot that fulfills everything that I've been looking for. And that's my way that I could be in the military and feel like I can contribute. That makes sense. It's also like, I don't know many women who the military is their dream. It doesn't seem that common. How'd you feel growing up? Not really, I guess, knowing quite yet what you wanted to do. I guess always felt like the black sheep in my family. My family has always been very academics oriented. Pretty much everyone was expected to go on and get master's, PhD, doctorate. Pretty much every single person in my family, like including cousins, aunts, (laughs) uncles, they are doctors, lawyers, engineers, and nobody really strays from that mold, except for me. (laughs) And I, I don't know, for some reason, I always, um, was just drawn to something else where growing up, I never had that traditional patriarchal archetype where your dad is the protector. He's the strong provider. Hmm. And so I guess from not having that, I saw it in becoming like my own protector and provider. Hmm. And that got me interested in firearms and self-defense and all of that kind of stuff that also led me into the military. Do you just like exploring things you don't know? Is is that just part of your personality in addition to like you're saying, kind of filling this normal way of like looking at life or a need of it? Do you think your personality is like you're not as scared by risk as other people? Yeah, it's that 
wonder of the unknown has always been very appealing to me and going against the grain and against the status quo has always been my not my goal but just like what naturally happens in my life and it shows in like more aspects than just joining the military it's that wonder of new experiences and new sensations and any new feeling is what drives me in all aspects of my life so that's what causes me to really enjoy travel really enjoy meeting new people trying new things going to new places that's what my soul is always looking for your family's kind of into academics so are you the first in your family to do the military thing yes so in my family it, yeah it wasn't really ever a thing to join the military isn't that unusual for women in the military that you know statistically i'm sure it's i don't know what percentage but obviously i'm assuming it's mostly male and then a lot of that is family tradition where they're kind of doing what their father did or it's always been ingrained in them for so for you to to do this it just seems highly unusual that's why i'm fascinated with like you know what is the personality mix of the draw or the attraction there for you that was so strong it's true one person that i worked with recently he was telling me how a family member of his has fought in every single war <laughs> since like the american revolution and i was like that's not the same for me and so i never really had that model to look at growing up for going into the military but i think because i did lack that strong male figure in my life that i could feel was my protector i also thought about like in my dating relationships growing up and i was always dating people in the military like people who were in special operations so they were kind of my models and they were like who i looked up to and i was always fascinated with their jobs and wanted to live vicariously through them until I was like, okay, I'm going to just do it on my own. What do you think makes you different than a girl who, you know, in the same environment as you, or maybe their father is more traditionally masculine, let's say, they still view things as threatening, or it would make them want to retreat back into their shell rather than like being drawn to it and say, I want to explore it. Why did you not find this world of like power or strength or whatever you want to call it? Why was that not so threatening to you, you were overwhelmed with it when you didn't really have much experience with it. It's still threatening. It's still like scary to me, but I think at the same time, just it's just my personality type to see hmm. danger as more of like thrilling. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if that's the adrenaline junkie in me or what, but anything with a little bit of, of danger involved usually is appealing to me. I can't quite pinpoint why and what led me to be this way, but it's just a fundamental part of my personality, I guess, and it always has been. And that's fun. The way it's described, it makes me think of like, you know, like this guy's being like the stereotypical dumb guy, which is like, watch me do this, y'all, like famous last words, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's a little, a little bit of that in me. Could you feel excluded from women growing up? Because, like, you know, usually it's like there's women going to the bathroom together in pairs. Did you relate to all that growing up? And now that you're in the military, is being with all the guys that feel like home? Where do you feel like your community or your home is? Yeah, so I definitely did have a lot of trouble relating to women growing up. I was more like one of the guys. I, I dressed like a tomboy a lot of the time, like, during my childhood. And I had one female friend 
growing up who was like my best friend but she was also very much a tomboy and very much like one of the guys so I related more to them and you would think that growing up that way I would feel more at home in the military because I only work with men (laughs) and um but it's actually grown to be somewhat opposite now that I go to work and I'm with men all day my roommates and males I crave that female um atmosphere just a way of relating connecting that whole yeah like I just really need estrogen in my life (laughs) I've, I've come to realize and so since or I don't work with women I don't live with women I made it a point when I got to my first duty station to try to make friends with a lot of females outside of work to fulfill that side so are there other women in your work like are you is it all male or what's kind of like the makeup what what was training like or how's your experience been in basic training and everything there was a good amount of females there like probably I would say maybe 20 to 30 percent of our basic training class was female but the thing is a lot of those females went on to do much different jobs whether it's working in the HR side of things or the medical side of things, that's more of the fields that most of those women went into. Whereas in aviation, it's a lot more scarce to have females. And so I think in my flight school class, there was like three females. And now at my first unit, there's one other female and she works in a completely different part of the building. So I never (laughs) even see her. Uh So it's pretty much just working with males now. And when you say three in your class, how what's like what's your class size roughly? Or I think we graduated with like fifty five. Is there a long story tradition of female aviators flying helicopters, or when when did this become a thing? And are you having to like pave new territory where it's like there's no bathrooms here for females because it's always been an all male environment? Are you dealing with that, or that's already been addressed? That's a really good question. I honestly don't know when the first female army aviator was I know that females have been flying in the military for a very long time now Mm -hmm. it's definitely not brand new as opposed to women in combat which is a lot more recent Mm. women were allowed to be in combat I think just a few years ago so we do have female bathrooms like my company our hangar has like a female locker room and everything so they are very accommodating to us but there are just some situations where being a female is a little bit more inconvenient than being a male, such as when we're out in the field. So about a month ago, we were out in the field for 30 days and it was like flat desert for miles and we didn't have porta potties or anything like that. And so I went to my chain of command. I was like, how do I go to the restroom without everyone in our entire (laughs) battalion seeing me? So they had to get a little creative with, with that. So it's just, there are little things that come up where being a female makes it slightly more inconvenient than if I were to just be a male. There's some girls that like honking a horn in traffic is like too intimidating for them because that's such an aggressive, like I'm causing conflict and expressing anger type of a move. Do you have any of those feelings? So it's definitely a skill that I had to learn, especially growing up in like an Asian household. The women are usually expected to be quiet and serve the men and like the typical 
female Asian stereotype is to make yourself smaller. Mm. So it was like a skill that I definitely had to learn over time was to take up space and make myself bigger, make myself heard. And it was super uncomfortable for me at first, but I think just over the years, uh, out of necessity, I've had to make it a skill of mine. What would you say to someone who's like, well, I'm not like her. I, I don't feel drawn to danger in one sense. That's the furthest thing that I want in my life. Is there no hope for them? Like you're saying, you're having to learn it. So it's not just natural to you, even though in some sense you're more open to it. But what would you say to a girl who's like, I can never be like you. I'm not, I can never join the military, let alone honk my car horn. What, like, what would you say to them? I would just say that if it serves you, if it's something that would make your life better, whether it's just speaking up to your boss or your significant other about your needs, I just want them to know that it's okay to take up space. It's okay to be heard. It's not going to make you any less of a woman. It's not going to make you less feminine if you have a voice. So I would just encourage women to step out of that comfort zone. At first, it's going to feel uncomfortable. It's going to feel scary and unnatural. But if it's getting you something that you want or something that you need, then I say go for it. That's like the female form of dealing with rejection, where it's like, you know, it's not typical for a girl to approach a guy, let's say, but it is maybe more typical that a girl doesn't want to share what she feels or thinks because she knows she might get rejected for that. Yeah, that's a that's a definitely an interesting viewpoint because obviously the typical rejection that men experience every day, like with dating, is not something that women have to deal with as much. So I guess, yeah, on the flip side, most men don't have to feel uncomfortable <laughs> making themselves heard or making their opinions heard. It's probably a very similar feeling. Gotcha. Well, I'm, I'm still trying to catch up with the Black Hawk Killer Copter because, like I, like I said, on my movie references, I know those, but <laughs> you're, you're actually doing it. So what is, like, the coolest memory or, like, like the most surreal, I can't believe I'm, I'm doing this? Like, what, what has that been like in a helicopter for you? Um, so we were, we were doing a training mission, and it was at night – and multi-ship, so multi-ship just means that we have multiple aircraft flying in a formation. Nighttime, we could barely see where we're, we're flying under night vision goggles. There's an aircraft in front of me, an aircraft behind me, and we're flying at 20 feet at 120 miles per hour. It's a very surreal feeling knowing that at any moment, if you drop the collective a little too much, then you, you'll crash and <laughs> potentially crash the entire formation flight. <laughs> so that's definitely, it's very thrilling, but it's a very surreal feeling knowing that just the one small movement could, could be the end. But it's also just so exciting and so cool that we have that ability as helicopters to fly so low and to be so maneuverable that we're able to accomplish those kinds of missions. So the coolest thing is almost dying, but not. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. That's a good way to put it. Also, a really cool one that where it didn't have death or danger involved was we got on our way home from California. We got to fly down the Vegas Strip, like 
right at the height of the buildings in a formation. And so that was really cool. Something that not a lot of people get to do. How are you allowed to do that? Is that normal that you can just fly through cities? Uh, we just asked. <laughs> we asked air traffic control. We're like, hey, can we get the strip tour? Because they do helicopter tours through there all the time. And uh. we're helicopters. Like We're like, can we take the tour, tour um, ourselves? And they let us do it. And it was super cool. <laughs> Well, I mean, I get that you're just helicopters, but as a civilian looking up, it feels like a little bit more of aggressive of a helicopter. Where you're... <laughs> you know, no, that's that's definitely a thing, too. I think there have been several instances where military military helicopters may have been flying a little too close to cities and they got reported. And it's funny because we have something called Ceph tanks, which are just external tanks that are attached to like wings to our helicopter and it's just so that we have extra fuel to go farther <laughs> but to a civilian they look like bombs yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if we're flying over a city with our stuff tanks on there has been instances where a civilian calls up being like hey there's a military aircraft carrying bombs <laughs> over my house and we're like oh no it's just fuel don't worry so that's what stops you from be being able to fly through more cities huh <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean and we're really loud super noisy underneath the helicopter so we try to not wake people up or disturb their work days with that you're saying it's really loud what's kind of like the physical strain of being a pilot obviously it's not like super like like it doesn't require a ton of physical strength or endurance because flying a helicopter they call it wiggling sticks because that's literally what we're doing the entire time is just wiggling the sticks back and forth like in very small motions usually but the physical aspect of it it takes an incredible amount of mental focus so for extended periods of time that can be exhausting just making sure that you're hmm. on your a-game the whole time and then also the vibrations of the helicopter at just at a constant rate are really bad for your back so most helicopter pilots end up having pretty bad back problems after like even just a year of flying, you can experience back problems because it vibrates your spine out of alignment. Mm. Jeez. With the mental side, I mean, how, how far off is the analogy of driving a car? Is that even comparable to flying a helicopter? Because it's not like driving a car is kind of relaxing. You just kind of go with the, that a helicopter isn't at all like that. So there are times where it is kind of like driving a car. Now that you've been driving for so long, you can go on autopilot and you mm -hmm. don't even have to really think about what you're doing and you're able to get yourself home. So there are definitely times like if we're just flying straight and level with not that many obstacles in sight, then it, it does just feel like you're driving a car just at a slightly higher altitude. But <laughs> um, then there are other times, especially with our job, that you have to be incredibly focused and it's not something that just comes naturally like you're making all these little calculations in your brain at once and you get we call it the pucker factor where <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh shit if i don't do this right i could crash this thing an example of that would be like a dust landing so if we're landing into heavy dust instead of just being able to see the ground the whole time and we just land it and know that we're landing it in a safe spot not drifting the dust builds up first at the tail and it'll just envelop the whole helicopter at some point and you're just trying to focus on a pebble on the ground 
to be able to know that you're landing it in a safe spot and know that you're not drifting laterally or backwards as you're putting the wheels onto the ground. How do you know where the ground is? Like, are you looking out of the front of the helicopter? So there's the windshield and our, a lot of times we'll fly with the doors off on the cockpit as well to make it easier to see so that door's not obstructing our view. It's a good and a bad because then dust flies into the mm. cockpit of the helicopter also and we get co- absolutely covered in it. But not having that door in the way also helps. And then the third way that we can see is through our chin bubble. So it's just it's right about where our foot is like our outer foot there's a little bubble uh window that is usually what we use to find a reference to to land the helicopter would you be potentially called upon to like land on the edge of a cliff or like i think when they got osama bin laden it's like they're putting down right inside this like complex how crazy are some of the landings you might have to do in flight school we definitely practiced confined area landing so it was in Fort Rucker, Alabama. So there's these really tall pine trees everywhere. And so they would find landing zones for us that were like barely the width of our rotor disc. So we would have to descend down through those trees without drifting at all. There's no, there's no space for play or else you would run into a tree. Or when I first got to Fort Bliss over here in Texas was the first time that I did a pinnacle landing that is just landing on the side of the mountain and, or a, like a ridge of a mountain. And most of the time you're not even putting all three wheels down. <laughs> so you can land on just your tail wheel and you're just having to balance there with your tail down or your front two wheels on the ridge of a mountain. And you're having to make sure that you're not tipping forward or backwards and sliding down the, the side of a cliff. So that's definitely one of the more fine-tuned skills that has to come over time. But sometimes it is absolutely necessary for the mission to land in a place like that, whether it's for like search and rescue or just inserting troops into a very harsh terrain somewhere. It's something that we need to be able to do. Has anyone crashed a helicopter in training that you know of? Is that that often or never or once? (laughs) (laughs) So it's not. It's definitely not never. I don't know the like actual t- statistics, but I think probably in a flight battalion, there are probably at least a couple of accidents a year. And those aren't always totaling the helicopter and having like fatalities. Like it could just be like smacking the tail of the helicopter on, on the ground and it damaging it, even though every probably every single accident cost the army millions but not all of them are as fatal and so i would say probably a couple a year gotcha well that's yeah five million dollar mistakes a little bit more (laughs) yeah it definitely makes it a little more nerve-wracking maybe my fender bender isn't so bad after all (laughs) (laughs) exactly to put it in perspective while i was in flight school which was a whole year and a half long I think we had two crashes, and neither of them were fatal, but Mm. they did destroy the aircraft. Does that automatically mean a flunk, like you're done? (laughs) Surprisingly, no. (laughs) It's actually the instructor pilot's job to ensure that the Mm. aircraft doesn't crash, and so it doesn't, that responsibility doesn't completely fall on the students, since we are learning. 
but it definitely still goes on the student's record. And you said like flight school a year and a half. So if, if I wanted to, like, could I be a Blackhawk pilot in a year and a half? How does that work? Um, yeah. So most pilots, they had been in the army for a long time doing a different job and then they transitioned over to becoming a pilot. So a lot of them were crew chiefs. So being the, the enlisted soldiers in the back of the aircraft who have several responsibilities to ensure the safety of the flight still. So some of them transitioned that way, but then what I did was I did what was called the street to seat program. (laughs) And so they literally, it's as if they're taking someone off the streets and putting them into the cockpit. That's just a matter of talking to your local recruiter and learning about the program and what you have to do to make yourself competitive enough to get accepted. And then they'll send you off to basic training or an officer candidate school, and then flight school. Dang, that's crazy. A year and a half later, your life's... So how did how'd your parents feel about... Completely different. Yeah, well, how did your parents feel about that, that you were on the street, so to speak, and then you're in the seat a year and a <laughs> half later? Are they... Is your mom cool with that? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say cool with it. She was definitely mortified the first time that I told her that I was accepted into the program. It wasn't like, a, oh, that's great, honey. She was like, oh... <laughs> Really? My parents have become much more supportive, but I think they're still terrified for me every day, and I definitely think it's put a couple more gray hairs on their head than would have initially been there. So far, like, like I'm hearing that you're like, you love danger, it's, but I mean, you sound super sweet. So is the picture of you like these stereotypical, like, I want to be a man and I'm going to be in the army and I'm the toughest. I don't have any feelings. That's not fair to put on you, is it? Or how, what would you say about that? Uh, no, I definitely have like somewhat of a split personality in that sense. So I can turn it on and be that person. Hmm. But I think to my core, like, no, I'm definitely still very feminine. I still enjoy like the traditional like gender roles of male and female within my relationships. It's definitely, there's like a duality to me in that aspect. Well, I like that nuance. It doesn't fit into the Hollywood movie of like who you're supposed to be. Yeah, like you're one or the other. <laughs> right, because it's like we need something super simple anyone can understand with no complexity. And it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I definitely don't fit into a ton of like stereotypical molds like there's always I always have to have like some sort of limb sticking out from that mold well that's fun it's like be yourself so I was just trying to like process like to figure out well what clearly you know you have this like super tough I love danger and the coolest thing about flying helicopter was I almost died it's like (laughs) not that you almost (laughs) did like there's that part to you but then what is something traditionally female that you enjoy that I might not expect if I have this picture in my mind of you just being this badass flying a helicopter. It was actually funny in flight school. My roommate was female also, and she would always be laughing because we would go from spend the whole day like mudding and just getting dirty and drinking beer and doing typical like stereotypical male things and then we would turn around and we would have like a complete spa day like get our nails done get our hair done want to watch like a girly movie and like sip tea for the rest of the night so we were both able to just like flip the switch like within the same day of doing something super masculine to wanting to be 
100% feminine. <laughs> and so I definitely still enjoy that kind of stuff. Like I enjoy beauty. I enjoy taking care of my hair, nails, and skin, just hanging out with girls and doing girly things, talking about girly things. Definitely still a part of me that I, I have to have to feel fully fulfilled. That's fun. I think it's cool. You have a uh, a broader range of the spectrum than just being limited to like one. Not that, you know, if if that's someone's personality and that's them, great. But for you, it's like, you know, you have more options available for you of what you enjoy. So that's cool. Yeah. I just like to experience it all. How would you respond if it's like, well, I thought the whole point of going to war was to protect the women and children. (laughs) And now you're a woman and you're going to war. And it's like part of me, it's like, well, I don't want her to die. So that's what I'm supposed to be fighting for. What do you think about that? And then is there some sense of which like guys are overprotective of you or they feel differently? They, do you, are you part of the group or what's that like? That's super interesting because it definitely, like if you look back at medieval times, like it was always the men protecting the women, like the women and children would be like put locked in some safe cave somewhere so that they weren't experiencing any harm. Well, it was Titanic too. I mean, that's kind of a war. <laughs> <laughs> Get on a lifeboat. (laughs) (laughs) But I think now it's just kind of become we have to protect the people who either can't protect themselves or who it's just not part of their, it doesn't fall into their lives to, to do. So like we need to protect the people who are unable to or have other things going on like back here in the States so that they can keep living the lives that they want to live. There are definitely some males that I work with who want to carry the heavy bucket for me. They don't want me to be like struggling and they want to make sure they still feel that it's like a natural urge to protect me or to help me. And so I just kind of have to be like, no, I got it. Like, like keep going, like I'll be okay. So I definitely experienced that, but I think just having women in the military for so long now that men are starting to adjust to it and accept women as just another part of the team. I get the demeaning side of that. Like if a guy thinks you can't do it or like you're lesser than him, so therefore he should, that is offensive. Clearly that's wrong and that's awful. And it's like, screw you. Like I can do whatever. But then part of me, it's like, it is kind of beautiful in a sense of like someone wanting to, like, is that part of the feminine side where it's like to be cherished, to be protected? Like you're saying growing up, like you didn't, you didn't feel you had that sort of physical protection and that's something you know you both did for yourself and also sought out i guess i'm interested since you see both sides to it like you know you go too far where it's like if a guy holds a door open for you that's offensive what do you feel about that whole topic in the sense of like if i'm at work and i'm carrying something heavy and a man offers to carry it for me it's not that i get offended it's it's more i just have to like show them like oh like this is what i'm meant to be doing so this is what i'm going to do and then when it comes to, like, holding the door open, if it's my boyfriend, like, he freaking better be <laughs> opening my door for me. I definitely still very much enjoy the whole chivalrous side mm. of dating. So I appreciate that. And I do think it's beautiful. And it gives me a little warm and fuzzy inside just knowing that a man is there wanting to protect me or wanting to make my life a little bit easier. I got you. But, but in the work environment, if you took that same approach it might feel to the group that you're separate from them or entitled. Yeah, work I need to establish that I am no different and I am here to do a job the same as you and we're going to accomplish that job together. 
I got you. I got you. Yeah, it makes sense. But it's like just the complexities of it where it's like you're you're not saying you're being rude or your desire to want to do that for me is wrong. It's just that's not appropriate in this military context because for better or for worse, we are supposed to be a uniform. And that's, you know, in one sense, interchangeable that a person is a person. You're a uniform. You're not, you know, some unique special individual. <laughs> right. Exactly. We're all just different parts of a working machine. Does that feel depersonalizing at times? Do you kind of have to suppress, like, um, you can't wear glitter on your nails, I presume? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's definitely helped in recent, like, it was just this year that women in the military, or women in the Army, I should say, because the Marine Corps still doesn't get to do a lot of these things, unfortunately. But we're able to have color on our nails now. It's, it has to be a very, like, muted, like, neutral color, but color nonetheless. And then we're also allowed to wear our hair in ponytails or braids. I know a lot of people who have been in the military for a long time dug their heels in, and they'll see, like, a female with a ponytail, and they die a little bit on the inside. <laughs> but um, it's definitely been a morale booster for women across the Army, just to even just to have the option of wearing their hair in a bun or in a ponytail. Like you say morale booster, but help me understand that, because, like, the guy's side of me is like, hopefully, oh, like... Dude, everyone has the same haircut. That makes life simple, like awesome. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's something that men in the army have been wanting for years is the ability to grow out a beard. Mm. Um, <laughs> so it's the same in that sense. Like someday, maybe men will be able to grow out facial hair in the army too and have that sense of individuality, but we're not quite there yet. We all dress the same. We have our boots bloused exactly the same and... So you do lose that sense of individuality in a, um, in a small way. And so any little way, like if it's wearing my hair in a ponytail or a braid that day, does definitely help me feel more like an individual. I don't know if loss of individuality is the right way, but it's more like putting my needs aside for the good of the collective, maybe? Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Definitely. That's... That's a huge part of what we do in the military and pretty much, I would say, every single job across the military because there are so many different jobs, but we all have that same sense of duty and that we're all working towards a common goal and to accomplish the mission, whatever it may be. And that was part of what drew you to the military. And like I hear, I hear from military people, like the sense of community they have where it Maybe I signed up for my ideals or my principles or a belief or this or that, that when push comes to shove, I'm fighting for my brother next to me, like, because we're family and it's this bond that's, it makes almost adjusting to civilian life hard. Or it's like even, even just the wives, they'll talk about, you know, they find their best friends and community with other military wives because it's a shared experience and everyone's so close. Is it, is that true? And is that part of this setting aside of your personality somewhat? to join a community that becomes so tight? What is it that makes it such a tight-knit community? Yeah, so I think what makes us so tight-knit is just the experiences that we go through together that we'll never go through with our civilian counterparts. Like, I have not been in combat yet. I know that's obviously a much more drastic experience of going through a hardship together and then forming that bond. But even just... Something like going out to the field 
when we went out to the desert for 30 days, we were all living in tents. We're all eating MREs. It was 106 degrees outside and we didn't have air conditioning. So something that you are with each other every step of the, of the way through. And it's something that like if I were to work a desk job, I would never experience something like that with another human being. So a bond just naturally forms when you're doing something like that with a group of humans because you're looking out for each other, you're leaning on each other for support because it's a difficult experience and it just brings you together in a way that nothing else really can. Taking that and then like broadening it out to like a societal picture, it seems like, I mean, people blame it on the internet and social media, and that's probably true, but there's a loss of community or a, a loss of purpose or a, a feeling of loneliness, which like social media is used to like give you at least some form of connection, even if it's kind of taking you away from like real community. The common thought is like, well, I want to be happy. I want to pursue happiness uh, in my life, in my job, in my relationships. But it sounds like you're saying you're finding like this community through hardship and through purpose, almost at the expense of your individual happiness. <laughs> so should we all like trauma bond and become like, <laughs> let's go through the worst things in life? <laughs> what, what, what do you make of that? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, in a sense, yes, like hardship definitely is a very big factor of what brings people in the military together. And that's that's true for military spouses as well, because the hardship of having their spouses away for deployments or rotations, they have to end up leaning on each other for support, and that's what forms that bond. But then at the same time, like, it's not just the bad things, too. Like, we experience these great things together as well. You form friendships, they become your family, and you get to spend every waking second with that family sometimes. So it's not all the bad that brings us together. There's moments that I've had with people in the military that are so joyous and they're probably some of the best moments of my life. That contributes to our bond as well. Life happens to everyone, so I think it's pain is unavoidable. But theoretically, I guess if somehow you could avoid all pain and hardship, that might feel naturally good, but do you think that is good? Or what is there something good about pain or what I mean, what do you what do you think about that? I definitely think it's one of those things where it causes you to be able to appreciate the little things a lot more than if you only go through life not ever experiencing hardship or challenges, you'll never like fully appreciate the good things in your life that you do have. And so <laughs> we just experience it in much more uh, drastic form. So like we're in the field for 30 days coming home to the porcelain toilet is like the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> um, so most people never experience the joy of seeing their toilet. So like all these modern conveniences and everything we take for granted. <laughs> it's like the joke about people on the Wi-Fi. It's like the first flight they had Wi-Fi on, people are already complaining about like, oh, it's not that strong. It's like being on an airplane <laughs> flying above the earth. You're not excited that you can communicate with people. <laughs> yeah, we're just, we're just so naturally to adjust and want more and want more and want more. Yeah, definitely. And I think as much as people in the military complain about it, <laughs> the Army does <laughs> force us to take a step back and appreciate all of the things that we have. That goes to say, too, with being able to spend time with your loved ones. And so it ends up 
being able to spend any amount of time with your family because you don't get to see them very often, then you end up appreciating it so much more. I know for me, between the being in the military and going through like Corona for the last couple of years, I haven't seen most of the members in my family in two years. Mm. And is that, like you say, traditional Asian family, which is usually close-knit and everyone's hanging out? Is that yeah. super unusual? Mm. Yeah, definitely. I usually wouldn't go more than a couple months without seeing, like, my entire extended family. I'm assuming you're, like, FaceTiming them, but Facebook is going with the metaverse and everything's going to be digital. What if you hung out with your mom every day on a metaverse or a Skype call or a 3D hologram of her? Do you think that would be the same as in person, or what? what is it that makes the physical face-to-face, why is that powerful rather than just something that's all digital? Yeah, I mean, obviously FaceTime and Zoom has definitely helped bridge those gaps between not being able to see people in person, but it's not the same because you don't have that person there next to you, like you don't have their full body language because you might just be seeing like their face on the screen. And then I think too, like you're if you're sitting down in front of a computer FaceTiming someone, it's a little bit more forced than if you guys are just like hanging out in, in a room together and have like the freedom to to just exist near each other. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I, I'm just like coming from like a technology background, there's this idea that like the like the body is almost gonna become it's outdated tech where it's like everything's going to be digital and this and this is all superior. And I, th- I think we, maybe we can't articulate it, but I think there's something about physical presence that you cannot, it's how we experience life through our senses and our body. It's how we make sense of the world. And it's, I think we disc technology discounts that and thinks it can do everything and it can do a lot of good things, but it, there is, yeah, there's, there's something there that we can't name, but there is, there's power and, you know, face to face person to person. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think like all of these advancements in technology are amazing and they are helping people in so many ways, but it's just not quite as authentic as spending time with someone in person. Is there something you wish I'd asked or something that it's like you want to share? What's, I mean, I, we talked mainly about like the helicopter, like d- 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 gymnastics and skydiving and Yeah, we have just like mainly focused on the military aspect of my life, but that has consumed so much of my life. That is the majority. Really? Like how many years have you been in the military? I've only been in the military for two years, but I mean, the military has become my entire life. But (laughs) (laughs) You've drunk the Kool-Aid. Yeah, I did. (laughs) But yeah, there was definitely a a whole journey that led up here that so do you, do you see like a pre-military self? Like there's the you before the military, then there's the you after. Like is that dramatic or it's more like this was always who I was and I kind of naturally grew into that? Yeah, but only in a sense of like I was just living such a different lifestyle before the military. For example, the year leading up to me joining, I was working as a personal trainer. I was making a decent amount of money. I was living on the beach in California and I had, like, an extreme amount of freedom in my life, so I could take off work whenever I wanted. I was the regional manager, so I could pretty much set my own schedule. I was, if someone was like, hey, do you want to go to France next week? I'd be like, sure, like, let's go, and I would do that. Like, I would just, like, pack up at the drop of a hat, and, like, 
find myself on the other side of the world. So, so it's you're, definitely you're, say, you're saying you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Now, I now, it now a you're... little bit sometimes. <laughs> no, yeah. I that's more i mean that's more powerful to put in context like this being out in the desert with a bunch of guys and in one sense that's it's painful but in another sense you chose that over being in france which yeah, is pretty fascinating i did i know <laughs> at the same time like that life was great and i miss it every single day but i wasn't fully fulfilled and i didn't have a a good sense of purpose then either so i have come to learn from experiencing two drastically different lifestyles, like it's helped me kind of find who I am as a person and what my what my values are and my priorities. So I know that someday in the future I will not be in the military because I miss that freedom to be able to do whatever I want and have a say in my schedule. But then I also very much appreciate the purpose that this job has given me. And so I want to continue doing something similar uh, once I get out of the military. You could be in France and you could be on a beach in California. In one sense, it's awesome that you accomplished what for many people, it's like they're still at the nine to five fantasizing about, but they're not actually you know, like moving to the beach. Why was that dream not enough for you? Why is like the old school, like, you know, like the Greeks, it's like well, someone's feeding me grapes all day and everything's just pleasure. Why, why is that not the answer to life? Because that seems to be what Hollywood would tell you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's great to just have the ability to just enjoy life and do whatever you want. But at least for me, it wasn't enough because I didn't have a strong sense of self. And I think that I find that sense of self through um, serving others. And so I was just trying to figure out what fulfilled me enough that I still enjoy the job, but I'm still able to serve others and serve this country is what it turned out to be. But I think that's, that's the difference is like, you can be happy in what Hollywood tells you, like have money, like have flexibility, like be able to buy the things you want, do the things you want. But at the end of the day, like, what have you accomplished? You've only made yourself happy. You haven't served any greater purpose. You haven't made anybody else happy. To me, you can't achieve full happiness without that.